Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. With your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to continue part 2 on the rapture. And as you can see, every part of the world, even abroad and even domestic, is going crazy. And you talk to people and they're saying, Brandon, I see all of life, all of the world heading towards this certain direction, towards judgment, towards hell, basically, Hades. Hell is coming to earth. The way people are acting in every section of society, the world is on this crash course on a destiny towards hell. And hell will come to earth. God is going to unleash his judgment on this earth for what's happening. And so not only do you see it abroad, but you see it domestically. We're seeing things in the United States that nobody's ever seen. It's not because I'm getting older or I'm getting more pessimistic about life or anything like that. When you hear other prophecy guys and you hear other guys who watch the world and the way that it's going, they're saying things that I'm saying. They're saying they have never seen what they're seeing. These are unprecedented times. Unprecedented things are happening. And you just look at just a survey of this week of things that you see and and the current things we're dealing with with fake news that you can't even trust news organizations to report accurately anything that's going on. The whole sports world is messed up. Look at the NFL, the NBA, all this other stuff. You know, people not standing for the national anthem and standing for the flag. And you're thinking, what's the deal here? What's wrong with these people? What's going on? Look at what's going on in Hollywood, what the music and the Hollywood industry crank out constantly. They say they're for violence, but they yet they make the most violent of movies. It's just amazing. And then you see this big explosion with this producer, this Harvey Weinstein guy, and that just continued to blow up. It was on the news all week long of the horrible, decrepit, institution that Hollywood really is. And I'm glad that people get to see it. I don't think anyone cares, but the music industry, Hollywood, politics are all like that. They're made up of these people that, you you know, you pay your way to the top and you're like, that's despicable. You see the hypocrisy that you see this week of these feminist organizations that are so for women's rights, right? And then yet they won't say anything about this situation because... Harvey Weinstein's one of them. The hypocrisy. And obviously Jesus warned about it. You see the shooting in Las Vegas. I mean, how is it that we don't know still what's going on there? What is the deal? I'm not a conspirator as far as thinking there's some types of things going on, but how come it doesn't add up? How come our intelligence community doesn't got this one down? How come? Are we saying now that we don't have enough intelligence to prevent things like this? Is that what we're saying? Or is it a cover-up? I mean, what is it? We start losing respect. We start losing our sense of security when our own intelligence community can't figure things like this out. Amazing. We look at academia constantly in colleges, universities. I mean, just cranking out nothing but Marxist, leftist, communists, ungodly. That's what the colleges are doing now. The whole system's broke. You can't change it. That's the way things are rolling now. And it's seeping into high school. It's seeping into elementary. And you look at the whole system of education in our country. They did what they wanted to do. And they started about 100 years ago, or maybe I shouldn't say 100 years ago, but about 1920s with John Dewey. This was their plan. And they did it very well through academics. It's not coming back, is it? And you look at all the kinds of people we're dealing with. You're seeing people in our country now that are the most irrational, illogical. You can't even talk to them. When you're trying to tell them truth, it just goes right over their head. We're talking past people now. You got the snowflakes that think it's a right not to be offended. And you got these militant leftist communists all through our country, ungodliness. Hypocrites, as Jesus called them. And then... To add fuel to the fire, 
We turn to our Christian brothers and sisters, and we think they're on the same page as us. Hey, man, do you see what we're seeing? And they're clueless. They don't have a clue what's happening in our world. And they're like, hey, I thought you were on the same page with me. We find out, man, we're, we're finding ourselves alone. The remnant is shrinking. The America and the world that you and I grew up in is gone. Have you come to grips with that? Do you realize we're not going back to how it used to be? You can be nostalgic about that and say the good old times, but the good old times are really gone. We're not coming back. Again, I see this from a pastor level, and I see this at the counselor level, and I talk to other pastors and counselors throughout the country. And the other thing we're seeing is a complete radical dysfunction within the family unit. Stuff that very few people would handle in their marriage or in their family life is now like common. It is extremely radical dysfunction. Stuff that's destroying families, the behavior of people. And I finally now I understand why Elijah must be sent back prior to the tribulation. If you read Malachi chapter 4, it says that he will turn the hearts to the children and the children's hearts to their fathers. And I get that's a a saying of he's going to mend the broken families in Israel. I get it now. There is such radical dysfunction in families, it's destroying them. So what am I saying? Is it just all doom and gloom? No, there's a reason this is happening. You have to get the message behind it. What is God trying to say? What is the message to us? Doom and gloom, just get pessimistic, or what, what, what's going on here? God is telling believers, the time is short. You need to let go of this world. It is going to hell in a handbasket. And the longer you hold on to it, the harder it's going to be to remove it from your hands. Let go. Politics is not going to solve your problems. Academia is not coming back. Hollywood, the music industry, the entertainment industry, the media, all this stuff is not coming back. The world that you grew up in is now leaving you. And God is saying to you and I, prepare and let go. Let go of it. See, what you have to understand about the rapture, there's a philosophical, Christian philosophical idea about it. And it's all through the Bible, and you can see the theme. When something can't get fixed on a human level... God does something. He just removes the righteous people out of that environment. That's what he does. And you know this very well with Sodom and Gomorrah. The place, the cities were not fixable on a human level. And God's way of fixing it was what? Take Lot and his family and get them out of the city before I destroy them. Because there's only one solution for what's happening. They must be destroyed. So I will take the ten righteous out of the city, like I told Abraham. Same thing about Noah's flood. You know it very well. It got to the point where it wasn't fixable. So what did he do? I'm going to take out the core remnant out of that world and destroy it. Folks, it's the same pattern today. It's not because you and I are getting older and grumpier and more critical and cynical. It's not that. It's that God is showing the remnant, this is not fixable. I then must remove my righteous remnant out of it, and then I must pour judgment on it. That's the message. And the message we walk away with to understand this is that our perceptions have got to be clear. We have to understand why he's doing this and then start preparing ourselves, preparing ourselves to be removed from this world. That's what the whole idea that Jesus would say, watch, be ready, be alert. Prepare yourself to be removed. What do you mean? Well, imagine that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. Let's just say that. We don't know. But how should I be living for that? If I'm going to meet Jesus, what should I be doing in my life? How should my life be arranged? How does my priorities look? How does my time look? How does my finances look? How does all these categories in my life, how does my marriage look? How does my relationships look? How does my service look? All of those things should be aligned if you're ready to meet Jesus. But the devil wants you to focus on this world 
get you messed up, get you dysfunctional so that you have your eyes off what's going to happen and so that you're not ready to meet Jesus. Oh, you'll meet him if he comes in our lifetime, but many Christians will be taken off guard. They will not be ready for him, and we'll talk about that because the rapture will happen and it'll be too late. So that's what the message of the rapture is, that we're looking at a thing that can't be fixed. A point of application before we move into the text. Sometimes in our lives, the right prayer is not for God. We'll fix this person, fix this situation, fix that person, fix this, fix that. And then God, if you just fixed everything around my life, then my life would be fine. And you know what God might say? No, no. I'm not going to fix these people around you. I'm actually going to pull you from the environment. And you might have to remove yourself from that environment. And that will be very difficult because God is trying to tell you it can't be fixed. I must remove you. So don't get mad and upset if you find yourself today or next week or next month being removed from something. Embrace it saying, thank you, Lord, I get the message that all this stuff can't be fixed. He will do that occasionally in your life. Embrace it and accept it. It's hard sometimes, but that's what the rapture, in essence, the principle of the rapture is trying to say to us. Now, let's unpack the rapture. This is part two of the study on the rapture, the the snatching away of the remnant, the church, before the great tribulation. I want to do a little bit of review couple minutes, and then I want to dive into the rest of what we have to do to unpack this. Now, let's go to the, the scriptures. Revelation 1, this is what we studied, and there's different facets to this. And what I'm going to do is marry this with the Feast of Trumpets, and also because John being called up to heaven is a typology. It's a picture of the rapture. It's a foreshadowing of what it looks like. Because things that happen to John are parallel with what happens in the rapture and the rapture doctrine. Again, we're not saying that we build doctrine off of this. We're just saying this is an example of typology. And there's typologies all over the Bible. David and Goliath is a typology of Jesus defeating the Antichrist and things like that. Okay? So as we look at this, it says, After these things, after the church age, we discovered, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. We'll talk about that door today. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So in essence, John has a translation, so to speak, and he's moved from the earthly scene to the heavenly scene, and he has a kind of rapture experience being taken into heaven to be able to see the scenes from God's standpoint. Again, it's a picture of the rapture. We don't build doctrine from it, but nonetheless. So last week, in points of review... I want to talk about the first parallel, the timing of it. And we talked about that it comes after the church age and prior to the Great Tribulation. And talking the Great Tribulation, I'm talking about seven years. So we talked about that. I gave out a little handout last week. It has kind of a layout of the church age and the tribulation. You can stick that in your Bible. If you need one of those that I gave out last week, talk to one of our ushers and they'll get it to you after service or whatnot. But we have those available if you didn't grab one, okay? You want to use that kind of to know your timing. So we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. The rapture comes after the church age finishes and prior to the tribulation. That's what we're talking about. We talked about that last week. The second thing we talked about was the parallel that John received was a verbal command. Come up here. And we will receive a verbal command, and it's possible that the command that Jesus gives us to come up in the rapture is come up here. That's the term that's being used. And so um, we're not too far off the mark of saying that. Okay, the other thing that we reviewed last week, and this is important, is to understand the feasts of God that he gave Israel. But the feasts of God show you the timeline of how the prophetic scenario works itself out. So as you know, the spring feasts were about Jesus in his role as high priest, Talked a little about uh, Peshach, the Feast of Passover, the death of Messiah happened. Number two, that we have Hag Hamotzat, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the burial of Messiah that happened. And three, Yom Habikarim is the Feast of First Fruits, resurrection of Messiah happened. And then we moved into Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and it was the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the church was born. That was the spring feast, and Jesus completed his role as high priest. Okay. Then we have what's called the summer months. The summer months conclude a four-month interval in Israel's time period between the fall feasts 
And we're right now in what's the church age. We're in that interval right now, and we're coming to a close to it. And right now, Jesus is continuing to function as the high priest. But when we get into the fall feast, Jesus will start functioning in his role as king. So he has been prophet during his ministry. Then he moved at the cross to his priestly role and afterwards till now. And then he'll move into king. So prophet, priest, and king. So you get into the fall feasts. Yeah, the first one that we're talking about is Yom Turah, the Day of Trumpets. And it's a time of repentance or rapture or a gathering of the church and Israel. And we're going to talk more about that. But during this time, when trumpets started, Israel would go into a 10 days they called of awe, where they would go into repentance mode and repent before the Lord before Yom Kippur. And we talked about that last week. If you want more information, listen to last week's message. I explained that a lot more in depth. Then you have after that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This will happen in Israel's national redemption, and it will occur to seal the deal at the second coming. So Israel will have to make its decision during the tribulation for Messiah, and then the deal is sealed once Messiah comes at the second coming, and that will fulfill Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. And then we talked about the Ten Days of Awe. And then after that is Yom Kisukot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, and that represents rejoicing, and it represents the kingdom age. And those will be the fall feasts that will be completed with Messiah. Obviously, they'll be completed during the last days of humanity, basically. As far as this age is concerned, you'll have trumpets, which you know, will start the days of repentance for Israel, and then Yom, uh, Yom Kippur, and then tabernacles for the kingdom age, or we call the millennium. Anyway, we talked a little bit last week about that, and then we talked about some of the names of the Feast of Trumpets, or Turah. One was Rosh Hashanah. That's what the rabbis use. It's not a biblical name. Head of the year, it's the birthday of creation, they say. It's a Jewish civil year. We talked about that last week. And then the other one was opening of the gates of heaven. We talked about that, that once the trumpet was sounded, the gates of heaven were open at that point. Interesting enough, that parallels that the doors open in heaven with John. And then we talked about Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, the time of Jacob's trouble is during this period of time. It sets off Jacob's trouble. Well, that's what the tribulation is called. It's called Jacob's trouble, right? So again, another reference to Israel. And then it's Teshuvah, a time of repentance, which will happen. And then the last one I think we covered was Yom Hadzikarin, the day of remembrance or memorial or the shouting for joy because God is remembering what he told us he would do. And the idea of remembering is a Jewish concept means that he's going to take positive action. And so when the trumpet's blown, it causes God to take action. The action we're talking about is the rapture, the gathering of the elect. Now, it's called the Feast of God, just to remind you. It's not called the Feast of Israel. They're called the Feast of the Lord. Because it not only includes Israel, but it does other things for the church, like Pentecost and trumpets is associated with the rapture. But let me make this statement. Trumpet is not exclusively devoted just simply to the church. Trumpets also incorporates Israel. That's why people get confused about trumpet. It incorporates both elements. Because there's an ingathering of Israel, and there's also an ingathering of the church. And there's a lot of different applications of the Feast of Trumpets not only to the church, but also to Israel. It is the only feast, and this is interesting, the only feast that God never says why you're going to blow the trumpet. It just needs to be blown. So the rabbis have come up with all kinds of reasons why it needs to be blown. I think the reason is because it applies both to the church and to Israel. And the church is a mystery. So it it leaves it open-ended. But then when you see the language that Messiah uses... For his coming, the rapture, he uses trumpet language. You can't get past it, and I'll show you that today. It's all trumpet feasts. Anyway, that's what we covered. So if you didn't get that last week, listen to it online, and you'll get brushed up on that stuff. Now let's get to what we're going to talk about today. The third parallel, the trumpet sound. You notice back in the verse, if you look closely to the verse, it says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. So Messiah's voice is like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here. So again, we're not building doctrine here, but we're seeing the parallel 
oh, John is hearing a trumpet sound, and he's having a rapture-like experience being called up to heaven. Well, then when you study the doctrine of the rapture, that's exactly what happens. A trumpet is blown, a shofar. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. We talked about this shout already of come up here last week. With the voice of the archangel a military command, and with the trumpet of God. Notice that phrase, trumpet of God. I want you to keep that in your mind. I want you to see this next passage, okay? The trumpet of God. The next passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Again, a mystery wasn't told in the Old Testament. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised uh, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Notice the two phrases that Paul uses, the last trump and the trumpet of God. A lot of people will try to marry this with the trumpets in the book of Revelation. Paul and his people, the Corinth church, had no idea about the book of Revelation because it had not been written. The book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., So they had no concept of trumpet judgments because John had not been given that revelation. So Paul is not referring to any trumpet sound in the book of Revelation. Hence, what then is he referring to when he calls this thing, according to the rapture, that a trumpet will be blown? This trumpet is called the last trumpet and it's called the trumpet of God. What trumpet is he referring to? What did they know? What did Paul know? Well, You have to go to the Feast of Trumpets to understand this. In the Feast of Trumpets, they would blow a ram's horn, typically. It could be a cow or whatnot, but typically they like to go with a ram's horn, just like this. A ram's horn is hollow. It's a clean animal, and it's hollow, so therefore you can blow through it. Most horns are solid bone, so you can't use them. Ram's horn has, notice the shape of it, has like a cylinder, and it it curves, Notice the curving of it. The reason a ram's horn is curved and the rabbis used it is because it represented turning in repentance. That you made a U-turn on the road in repentance. And trumpets signaled repentance. So it was curved to represent people repenting in their life and turning around to God and turning away from sin. It was typically used for that, that, that kind of visual message. And it was called a shofar. Now, the intent was this, and you have to understand that if I'm going to blow the shofar and I'm going to go through the 10 days of awe all the way to Yom Kippur, my intent is to obey the Lord and repent and do it and not go through the motions. You just couldn't walk through it. And remember, God would tell Israel many times, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So when you participated in the Feast of Trumpets, you had to put your heart into it if you were going to be written in the book of life. You had, it had to be sincere. It couldn't be fake if you participated in this feast. Okay. So that being the case, the other name that's associated to this is Yom Teruah. That's the real name, and I think we have it on the screen, Yom Teruah, the day of awakening blasts. And, and they, would, they would basically do on uh, this day a hundred blasts from the shofar. What they would do is they would have different blasts representing different aspects of repentance. So let me show you on the screen what these aspects were. The first one was a tekiah. It was a long single blast, and it represented joy and contentment because salvation had come, because they've repented, and the gathering was getting ready to happen. So you would, you'll hear that blown. And then you'll have Shevarim, uh, three short blasts. It represented weeping over sin. And then you would have Trua, which is an extremely short blast with a combination of nine staccatos, symbolized trepidation, sorrow, and sobbing, and more intense grief over sin. And then you would have the last one, Tekia Gedola, extremely long blast, And it was considered the last trump and the hope of redemption. Now, here's how it went down. I'm going to show you a video so you can see an actual Jewish service on the Feast of Trumpets. What they would do is they would have this rotating about 11 times of playing uh, playing the, uh, the first three. 
A, B, and C, the Tekiah, the Shavarim, the Truah, and they would do it 99 times. And when they got to the 100th one, then they went to the Tekiah Gedola. And I've cut this because it's a very long thing. I've cut the clip so you can hear the last thing. You'll hear the rabbi announce what trumpet blast will be blown, and then you'll hear the guy play it. I want you to hear this last one, the Tekiah Gedola. You'll hear him state it. What the guy blowing the shofar is supposed to do is take all of his breath and blow it as long as he can. It's the hundredth blast. And this is ancient. This is going thousands and thousands of years of how they've celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. They were never told to do this, by the way. They just did it. Okay? The Tekiah de Gola is considered the last trump or the trump of God. Okay? Let's play that video. That's the last trump. That's what Paul was referring to. It's called the last trump, the trump of God. Notice Paul says that on the last trump, he will call us up. We will hear the Tekiah Gedola coming from heaven. And the last one is the longest blast and is the call to regathering. That's what Paul meant in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. It is not a reference to Revelation. It is a reference to the Feast of Trumpets. That's the sound you will hear. You will hear a blast from heaven before this great day that will call you and I to attention. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then you and I will go up when you hear this blast. Amazing, isn't it? That's the last blast. Now let's go to the next parallel we want to watch. The fourth parallel is the destination. The destination. He says this, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Here is where. Where is he talking about? Obviously, heaven. But what heaven specifically? The third heaven, the abode of God. That's where John was called up to. That's where you and I will go. We will first go to the first heaven, which is the atmosphere, to meet the Lord in the clouds, and then he will usher us back to his home, his father's home, to the third heaven. We will pass through the second heaven, which is space, where our planets are and stars. We'll pass through that and then end up into the third heaven, the abode of God. And we'll see other passages that reference this. And you'll see this, I think, this is First Thessalonians 4, again, a rapture passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Now I know what he's talking about. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The first heaven in the atmosphere will be called in the first atmosphere. He'll meet us there. That's why the rapture is different than the second coming. The second coming, he comes to earth. The, the rapture, he comes into the clouds, into the atmosphere, the first heaven, and we meet him, we're called up there. And thus, we shall always be where? With him. Where is he going to go? Therefore, come from one another. Well, another passage adds more understanding to where he's going to take us. We're going to be with him, okay? So if we just had that, we wouldn't know. But John 14, he tells us where we're going. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places that he is creating for us. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's taking us to the bridal chamber. That's all wedding language. That's Jewish wedding language. So he meets us in the air to take us back to the bridal chamber, which is in heaven and his father. This is all wedding language because the boy would go and, and he would tell the girl once the deal was made with the father, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. He would go to his father's house and he would prepare a bridal chamber. He'd actually add on another room to, the, to his dad's house to prepare a place for his bride and him to, to be. The bridal chamber is a massive chamber. It's called the New Jerusalem. And as the Jewish boy would build a square, it would be a square onto the dad's house. The New Jerusalem is a massive bridal chamber. It's a square. You can see this in Revelation 21 and 22. 
So it's all wedding language. That's where we're going to go, to be in heaven. But the negative is this. We're off the earth. We are off planet earth where all the judgment, where God is unleashing hell on this planet, literally hell, come to earth. And we're taken off. And notice this. Jesus makes reference to this being off the earth in Luke 21, 26. I want you to see this. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy. That's a Hebraic expression for salvation. To escape what? To escape. Escape. See, they accuse us of being escapists. But all I'm doing is using the Lord's words. Yeah, I want to escape from this world. Absolutely. I'm not crazy. I am an escapist because he says you're worthy to escape. You only escape because you're a believer. All these things that will come to pass and go where? And to stand before the Son of Man. Where is the Son of Man going to be located? In heaven. And hence, what will we do? Stand before him. That's how you get to be where he's at. When you, that meaning of stand before him means that we're going to stand before him in the judgment seat of Christ. That's the only safe place to be. It's not to be on this earth. So you have that. So let's get to the fifth parallel. Another aspect of what John experienced that we will experience in the rapture. And first of all, we see the condition. It says this, and you go back to the passage. It says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now this is interesting. The Greek theologians get this one. For instance, like Thayer, he'll say this, this denotes conditions which must be complied with in order to receive the right to the kingdom. So in other words, what the, the Greek scholars are saying is that the reason the door is open is that the person has permission to go through it. It's not permitted to anyone that doesn't have permission. You have to have the qualifications to go through the door to enter into heaven. Well, you know what those qualifications are. Jesus himself said it. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way you're getting through. I'm the door, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? So Jesus is the qualification of that. And you go back to that, that Luke passage real quick, you'll see this. It's even embedded in that passage. Worthy to escape is a Hebraism means salvation. In order to get there, you have to be saved. So here's, here's what will happen. The church will be raptured, but only the believing element of the church will be raptured. There are many people today that call themselves Christians who are fake. Like we call this fake news. They're fake. They're not going. They're going to be left behind. And he's warned the church in the, the church passages in Revelation 2 and 3 that if you play a game with me and you're really not saved, you're going to be left behind for the Antichrist and hell come to this earth. He goes, I'll cast you on a bed of suffering, is what he said to the church of Thyatira. He'll leave them behind. You won't escape. So all of that, that language is you, the first condition is you've got to be saved. But there's a second condition for believers that has to happen. The second condition has to refer to our bodies. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You and I right now in our natural bodies could not enter that gate right now. Even though we're saved, we could not enter that gate because flesh and blood cannot inherit. Because what is in our flesh and blood? The sin nature. The sin nature has corrupted us. Hence, something must be done to our bodies in order to pass through this gate. Explains it. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Again, this was not talked about in the Old Testament. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of eye, uh, twinkling of eye actually could be translated in an atom of time. That's how quick it is. But the twinkling of eye is, is a facial recognition. That when you see somebody and all of a sudden you recognize them, then your eyes light up because you recognize them. That's how fast it's talking about. We'll be changed. In twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, there's that dress trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 
So it's not just simply just being removed off the earth. In order for Jesus to get us into heaven, we've got to go by through Jesus in salvation. But one more thing must happen to our bodies if we're physically going to be present with him. We must have our bodies changed. He must give us a glorified new body, a spiritual body. And this new spiritual body does not have blood in it. It's flesh and bone. It's energized by the Holy Spirit. It's a different constitution. I guess if you look at the way Jesus was resurrected, a lot of times they had a hard time identifying him. Remember that? Until they heard his voice or something like that. Imagine you in your perfect DNA. God knows what that perfect DNA looks like. And he has that, and he's going to make the perfect you before you get there because you cannot stand in his presence in your flesh. You will die. And so in order to go to heaven, you have to be changed. That's why the rapture involves a resurrection of dead, changing their body into a glorified body. Their souls that are in heaven will meet that body and be reunited with their glorified body. And then we who are alive and remain, our bodies change in an instant to be, to be able to be present in heaven. So the only body right now that's in heaven is Jesus' body. Jesus has a glorified body, right? There's no one else other than him. So we're next to get these new bodies, which the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to it. I'm tired of waking up with aches and pains and looking in the mirror saying, what happened to me? Yikes. But that's the qualification, This is why there's an awaking blast and there's a resurrection attached to the Feast of Trumpets and the rapture. Sixth parallel. The sixth parallel is the imminency of it prior to the tribulation, as you can see in the fall feasts. And if you know the Hebraic calendar, you could never get prophecy out of line. Right now, we have a bunch of Christians who think they're in the kingdom. And you're like, you're putting the Feast of Tabernacles in front of Yom Kippur, in front of the Feast of Trumpets. You can't do that. You have to go along with the calendar. So by the Jewish calendar, if you follow it, you end up with a pre-tribulational rapture, a seven-year tribulation, and then a kingdom age. That's simple. And then obviously scripture backs that up. But the rapture then becomes imminent prior to Jacob's trouble. It doesn't start Jacob's trouble, but at least we know it's prior to it. And here's the term I want you to see, the name of the feast. The passage is, I will show you the things which must take place after this. The after this is the tribulation. That's your timing mechanism for it. And so, so here's the name for this, okay? The name for it then Another name is Yom HaKesa, the hidden day. This is very interesting. Please take note of this one, because when you understand the name of the feast with this one, you'll start understanding how Jesus is using the the phraseology for the rapture. Yom HaKesa, the hidden day, refers to the trumpet, the Feast of Trumpets, which was a two-day feast. It is the only one of the feasts that was celebrated two days. Do you know why? Interesting. Because it's based on the moon. The Jews went by a lunar calendar. That's actually the biblical way to understand things is by a lunar calendar. Let me show you the phases of the moon, okay? So obviously you have the the phases of the moon. That's very Jewish to go by a lunar calendar. It's a 360-day calendar. Okay, and then you have to, they add in days to catch up with the, the solar calendar. We're on a Gregorian calendar, a Gentile calendar, but the Jews don't operate like that. They operate on a lunar calendar. When you understand the seven years of tribulation, it's a lunar calendar seven years. It's not a Gregorian calendar. God operates on a lunar calendar. Okay, that being the case, this feast falls on a new moon. Not a full moon, like we see in, the, in this, uh, like tabernacles will, but it falls on a new moon. Let me show you what a new moon looks like. Barely see it. You can barely see it, right? You can barely see the horns of the outline of the new moon, right? Very difficult to see. Very difficult. You can see the outer rim, just a little bit of a horn over here and a horn over here. Very difficult. Here's the problem. With the Feast of Trumpets starting on a new moon, 
what Israel would have to do would send watchers to go see if the new moon rose. And they would sit there and see if they can see it. And a lot of times, it didn't rise. They couldn't see it. And if they couldn't see it, they would have to go back and say, we haven't seen it yet. So they would just keep watching, and then the next day they'd watch, and they would see if it rose, and typically on the second day or whatever it rose. But every year changed. Some days it was on the first day, some days on the second day, and the hour and when it appeared, the horns of the new moon appeared, would appear at different hours of the night. So they had to have watchers watching all night long. And then once they saw a a glimmer of the new moon, they would run back, tell the high priest, and then blow the shofar once they saw it. Okay. Simple enough. But the feast became the, the, the name of trumpets became the hidden feast because no man knew the day or hour when the new moon rose. You catching on to something? That term was connected to the Feast of Trumpets. No man knows the day, because it's a two-day feast, or hour when the moon rises, of when the moon will appear. So must, we must watch for the moon to rise. You connecting something? The term no man knows the day or the hour except the Father is trumpet language. It's trumpet language. It is a direct reference to the Feast of Trumpets. That term no man knows the day or the hour comes from that feast. Hence, it calls for, for imminency. This is why a lot of people believe that the rapture will happen on the Feast of Trumpets. This is what I don't know as a pastor, and I've studied this hours and hours, and I don't know it still. Let me give you my best guess. There's a camp of people that do, and I rightly so, believe that the Feast of Trumpets and that term, no man knows the day of the hour, is connected to the Feast of Trumpets, and it is, but that it directly connects to it, and that it still satisfies imminency because you never know the year, you still won't know the hour, and you won't know the day because it's a two-day feast. And they're okay orthodoxly saying it because they're not going to set a date. They just say, by precedent, Jesus has fulfilled all the spring feasts on the very day. Why would he not fulfill the fall feasts on those particular days, even though they might be spread out throughout the Great Tribulation? And they have precedent to say that. The other camp... And both camps are orthodox, says, no, he's using trumpet language to talk about imminency. And yes, it's a reference to the Feast of Trumpets, but he's using the language to give an illustration of imminency. Just like the moon was imminent and they didn't know, but that he's using that language. That camp is true too. So you have imminency on both camps, but one is is connecting it to the Feast of Trumpets. And I'm going to tell you this, I still don't know. I've studied hours and hours, and, and, and there's good scholars on this end, and there's good scholars on this end. All we know is with the Feast of Trumpets, you never can point the pinpoint the day or the hour. And if, if you want to say it, then you, you, you still won't get caught setting the date because no one knows the day or the hour of the rising of the moon. You just don't know. So you're, you're okay. You're safe in both camps. And I just put it out there because I don't know. I've done all the homework I could possibly do on this, and I still don't know. So it's one of those two things. He's using that. Okay, what's the application then? If it's imminent, whether it's on trumpets or any time, and he's using language, Messiah will use the word watch all over the place. He uses it in the Olivet Discourse. He uses it in the book of Revelation. And any time Paul or Peter make reference to that, watch, therefore, watch, therefore, That's the application. But most people think watching means, oh, okay, I'm going to study the current events, and then I'll be ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Let's go. That's what they think watching means. It doesn't mean that. It's a Hebraism, and it comes from what was happening in the temple. Let me show you a passage, and I'm going to break this out, because this this is where the rubber meets the road in the application of the Feast of Trumpets and the rapture. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Watch, therefore. There's that word. That's our application. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Trumpet language, yeah? You pick up on that? It's trumpet language. But know this, that if the master of the house 
had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, there's that word, the word watched, and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect trumpet language. Notice he says, he's talking about a thief. If a person would have known when the thief would come in, he could have stopped the thief from taking his belongings. I want you to notice he's referencing the word thief, and I'm going to connect it to something else in the Jewish culture. You obviously know that a thief comes into your house to do what? Steal your stuff. To take what already belongs to you and take it. And he's saying that those who watch prevent thieves from taking their stuff. But those who do not watch, whatever this word watch means, end up having their stuff taken. Okay, following me? Okay, because it's going to make sense after I show you a couple other passages. Okay, let's go to the next one. This is Revelation 3. He says this to the church of Sardis. Therefore, if you will not watch, he's talking to believers Believers who won't watch, not unbelievers. He's not talking to unbelievers. So let's get that category out of the way. He's talking to believers. If you will not watch, whatever this word watch means and the application of it, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come upon you, trumpet language. But he calls himself the thief. Did you catch that? Messiah is saying, I'm the thief in the parable. I'm the thief that's going to come and take what belongs to you. If you don't watch, I will come. It's me that's coming as a thief in the night, and I'm going to take something from you. You're catching that. So Jesus is not saying Satan is the thief. He's saying he is the thief, metaphorically speaking. A thief takes what belongs to you. Now, again, don't push the metaphor too far. Well, Jesus would never sin. He's never going to take. No, 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 no. Don't push it. Don't push it. It's a metaphor. Stay with the metaphor, because I'll, I'll show you what it means. Next passage, I think we have. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. Now he throws something, a new, a new twist in this. Who keeps his garments? Yeah, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Keep that up there. He has now just thrown a new wrinkle into the subject. I'm the thief And you better keep care of watching because you're going to lose your clothes. Otherwise, you're going to walk naked and they, who's they, will see your shame, the other people. Ah, okay. We're on to something here. Most people don't understand. They they understand thief and, yeah, somebody's coming in. It's like, I didn't know he was coming in. No, no, no. You have to start breaking it down in the Hebraic culture. Okay, everyone here as a Gentile understands a thief in the night, right? Everyone gets that one. But they don't know what it's attached to it that happened in Israel and where the term came from. And then it'll make sense in this passage. What happened was, this is a reference to the temple guard. This is a reference to the high priest in the temple. And those who were to stay up all night and keep watch through the night so that the temple fires didn't go out, especially the altar. The altar fire could not go out. So you had the captain of the guard or the high priest would get up in the different watches of the night and go check on the priests who were supposed to be awake and the other captain of the guardsmen that were out there protecting the temple. Let me show you a picture. What they would occasionally find as they went through the night, whether it was the high priest, usually it was the captain of the guard, they would find priests asleep in the middle of the night. They fell asleep on duty. And a lot of the, the guards fell asleep and a lot of the priests. And so they would, they, they, if they fell asleep, they couldn't keep the fires going of the altar. They had to keep that fire going constantly. So everyone had to stay awake, stay alert, and keep the functioning. And the guards had to protect the temple from Gentiles coming in. Because if they all sleep, then it could be made unholy if people who were not permitted into the temple came in the temple and could desecrate that, right? So guarding, priests are on active duty. Okay, so here's what happened. Either the high priest with his attendant or the captain of the guard would get up randomly at the period of night, and they did this to keep people on their toes. That, hey, don't think that you can't get a visit from the high priest or the captain of the guard tonight if you're on duty. 
And that actually kept people awake that he could come at what? At any time. So they stayed awake. But occasionally they'd find a guy asleep. Alfred Edersheim notes this. Adam Clark notes this. It's a very Hebraic thing. So what the high priest or the captain of the guard would do is they found a dude like that sleeping. They would go to the altar, take coals, and take a stick from the altar or whatever that was burning. And as he was asleep, they'd light him on fire. They'd light his clothes on fire. His outer tunic. No joke, man. At the temple, everything counts. We're not going to have some dude fall asleep and have somebody come in there and defile the temple. It was a real deal. They didn't care if they burned him. You're not falling asleep. So occasionally it did happen. So they light the dude's cloak on fire with the embers from the altar. And what would happen is the dude would wake up, freak out because his clothes were on fire, and take off his clothes. He'd take off his clothes because everything was on fire, and he would run naked out of the temple. And all the priests and everybody around saw him running nude, which was one of the worst things in the Hebraic culture is to be caught without your clothes on. You were naked because you, your robes had been burned because you were sleeping on duty. Hence, the term thief in the night was connected to the high priest or the, or the captain of the guard who would literally come as a thief in the night and burn the guys sleeping. Are you following the connection? Go back to Revelation 16. I'm coming as a thief. I'm coming as the captain of the guard does, as the high priest does. Blessed who watches and keeps his garments. Does that make sense? They're only going to keep their clothes on if I don't burn them. Unless he walk what? Naked. And see his shame. That's what thief in the night means in the Hebraic culture. Us Gentiles, we simply, that misses this. And most commentators miss the whole thing of what he's talking about. Okay. I get that, Brandon. What's the application, though, this idea of watching? Staying awake, I get that, okay? Staying alert. I hear people t- tell you that at prophecy. Gone. Stay alert, stay awake. What does that mean? Well, I don't have to go any further than Messiah. He explained what it means. Go back to Matthew 24. This is a continuation of what he stated at the beginning, by the way. Same context. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? The two terms, faithful and wise. How are you to watch? He's explaining now what it is to watch. How does a believer watch? How are they stay awake? First of all, he says, you've got to be faithful to me. What does that mean? I say, put a bumper sticker on my, on my car and say, I love Jesus. Is that what faithfulness means? No. Faithfulness is in contrast to loving the world. I must love Jesus before the world. I must love him before my family. I must put him as the priority and not my money, my bank account, my material possessions. If I love my family more than him, if I love my money and my possessions more than him, I am a spiritual adulterer. Because I'm loving something else, the world, rather than him, I am an unfaithful person, unfaithful Christian. And by the way, there's a lot of those. A lot of Christians love this world. They love what it gives them. They love, and in fact, they're addicted to what the world gives them. And hence, they can't watch. They're asleep because they have someone else in their life other than Jesus. Jesus is a part of their life, but he's not the main thing. Faithfulness to Jesus makes you awake because he's your number one priority. Okay, and we can flush that out. But James makes it pretty simple. If you love the world, then don't say you love Jesus. You're a spiritual adulterer, he said. And James said it, not me. What about this wise servant? How does the wise servant stay awake? That's simple. Wisdom in Bible literature means the application of Scripture for every moral dilemma that
that I could possibly put myself involved in. What do you mean? Well, anything that comes my way, I'm going to have to make a decision about. Anything that comes my way, I'm going to have to think, how do I think about this? How, what action does it require? And hence, I must apply the right scriptures to whatever situation in order to fulfill the will of God. If you simply do not know the scriptures and how they apply to your life, you will be lost in this world. Hence, you won't be ready for Messiah. You won't know how to apply scriptures to your personal life, and hence, those people are asleep. Because they don't know it, and they don't know how to apply it. But he continues on. Blessed is a servant whom his master, when he comes, find him so doing, being faithful and wise, applying the scriptures, understanding things in that, these broadest terms. Assuredly, I say to you, they will make him ruler over all his goods. If you watch and you're ready for when I come, you will not be ashamed. In fact, and I'm going to give you positions of leadership and authority in the kingdom age. I have a big reward for you if you're ready for me and not ashamed. Okay, so the negative then of being ashamed, and you can go to 1 John, and I think it's in chapter 2, in my last verse, verse 28, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood, says that many Christians will be ashamed at his coming. They won't have any clothes on. Well, what do the clothes mean? What, what did it mean that the, the guy stripped off his clothes because it was caught on fire and he had nothing but his naked body? What did that mean in spiritual terms? Simple. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Revelation 19. Revelation 19 says the white robes that are given to us represent our righteous acts. Not righteousness, Righteous works, righteous acts. They are a reward for faithfulness, for serving, for doing what you're supposed to do. They're a reward for that. Hence, when Jesus arrives and he can't reward people because all their works have been burned up in the fires of judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, the smell of smoke will be on their naked body and all of the body of Christ will see their shame. Remember, the priest that went running out of the temple, every other priest woke up and saw him running nude right in front of them. And they all knew what had happened. He fell asleep. When we're at the judgment seat of Christ and you see Christians there, and you will see this, believers, who simply are not rewarded and they stand in their naked shame with no white robes, you will know for all of eternity they didn't do anything while they were on this world. They live for themselves, they live for pleasure, they live for the world, and Jesus couldn't reward them, so they're naked spiritually. He told Laodicea that. Buy clothes from me, garments from me, because you're right now, you're naked. You're useless. You don't do anything for me. Hence, I can't reward you. And the shame comes with that. He continues on, and then we'll, we'll finish up. But if that evil servant, he's not talking about unbelievers, by the way, it's context, he's talking to believers, says in his heart, my master's delaying is coming. Look at the attitude. The first thing he hits is the attitude. These Christians, these believers who are evil, he calls them evil. The way it starts, the way they start becoming evil is they don't, he's not coming back in my lifetime. He's not coming back. So while the cat's away, the mice will play. That's their mentality. He's not coming do you understand when I tell you guys that 70 to 75% of the churches don't preach prophecy? Do you know why that pastor doesn't want Jesus coming back? And he doesn't want his people to know he's coming back because then you can start putting your stakes down in this world and start building a glorious worldly empire and begins, when the attitude starts, look what happens to the person. He begins to beat his fellow servants. Once the attitude of persons says, Jesus ain't coming back, the first thing he does is he turns on his brothers and sisters, starts beating them up, spiritually abusing them, starts doing things they shouldn't be doing, backbiting, gossiping, slandering, you name it, revenge, passive aggressiveness, you name it, they're doing it to everybody. You see the evilness? What? the lack of expecting Jesus to do, does to a believer. And then what else? Do they, and they start eating and drinking with drunkards, start becoming just like the world. 
You won't be able to tell a difference between a believer and a secular person, Jesus is saying. That's how they'll act. They won't act any different. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. Yes. And an hour that he's not aware. Trumpets. And will what? Cut him into two. They'll cut him into two. It's actually the, I, the, the connotation, and this is going to happen to the judgment seat of Christ, he saws them in half. That's what the language is. He, the Messiah is saying, I'm going to saw this servant in half, verbally, with the word of God. With the sword and the cleaver of the word of God, I will literally slice this believer in half. What it means is I will verbally rebuke them. I will give them a tongue lashing they have never had before. They thought the tongue lashing from their parents was bad. Not till Messiah gets a hold of them for acting this way. And appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. Again, I'm not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers who lived for the world, who said they were Christians and they were saved, but they lived in hypocritical life. And so they get a stigmata or an ostracization in the kingdom that they are among the naked. They can't rule because they forfeited that right here and now because they weren't watching for me. Do you see what's at stake here? This is why this is never preached, because it scares people. It rocks their world. And I'm talking to believers. The whole context is for believers. This is why you'll only hear, Joe, just be ready. What does that mean? Do you see what it means now? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Watch, therefore, because I will come, as in the Feast of Trumpets, as a thief in the night. It's going to be like this. Just as in the days of Noah, Jesus said, they will be eating and drinking, giving in marriage, going about daily life, and then the end will come. It's a normal day, and then it happens. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.